Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My guest today is Dr. Tana Cooper, who is Curation and Conservation Director at the National Trust, and she was formerly curator of 16th century collections at the National Portrait Gallery. She was very much our sort of woman. She is an author several times over, and her most recent book is 125 Treasures from the Collections of the National Trust. It's a gorgeous little book. It's just come out. It would make the most wonderful gift. And as you know, I take the playing field of not just the Tudors to be anywhere from the late 15th to the late 17th century. So I asked Dr. Cooper if she would speak to us about a dozen treasures from her book that date from this period. And that is the rather wonderful task that we have ahead of us today. But before we get into that, Tanya, how did you choose 125 (laughs) treasures from everything that the National Trust has? It must have been an excruciating process. What were your criteria? We were really wrestling with lots of different things because I wanted to show the extraordinary range of objects that there are in the trust, you know, everything from tapestries and paintings and sculpture to armour to dress to furniture to ceramics, vast numbers of different things. But we also wanted to show some of the key treasure houses present their collections across the whole of the National Trust. So we're thinking about the regional variation and ensure that we could, across time, have enough objects that were really represented a particular period. So partly because my background is 16th and 17th century, there are quite a lot of 16th and 17th century things in the book, but there are certainly Greek and Roman objects, there are 18th century things, and there are 20th century things too. And the interesting thing about the National Trust collections is that unlike a museum's collection, they are in some cases in the situation in which they were used. (laughs) They are in their historic places and they haven't been imported to be displayed. Well, perhaps they have, but they've been imported to be displayed in a domestic space. Yes, exactly. I think there's something very, very different about a historic house from a museum because what you're looking at is an ensemble of extraordinary objects in a place put together, often over time, sometimes by one particular family, and that those objects play a very specific role within the context of that space. But they are also often internationally significant objects in their own right and they tell a story of their life perhaps before even they were acquired or installed in a particular place. So some of the objects in this book tells you a little bit about the way that they were made or where they were first made but also some of these objects were directly commissioned for particular spaces and I think that's the thing that's exciting about trust collections is you're seeing them in the context of a 17th century interior and that feels very very different to understanding the meaning. And I'm just struck by the fact that 
having already been a specialist on portraiture from this period, you've had to become a specialist on everything, on every material piece of culture that we have and every object that the Trust has to offer. Well, I'm certainly in awe. Well, I certainly say I'm not, and I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants, really, because we have an extraordinary team of curators across the Trust who are specialists in all sorts of things. What was great about this book is that I worked really closely with them, and they produced much longer text, which then I looked at and pulled out all sorts of different things and thought about how we can tell a narrative of those collections from all of their expertise. But it's been great fun as well, because for me, getting to know, having worked in one particular area, 16th and 17th century portraiture, and now being able to kind of play, if you like, with the trust collections and to work across silverware and armour and decorative arts of all sorts is pretty exciting. And it's also a really big learning curve as well. So fascinating to be able to work in this way. Great. Well, let's have a chat about 10%, I suppose, of the book that we're going to be talking about, a dozen objects. So as we talk about them, we're going to look at pictures of them. And I will get some very nice high quality pictures of these objects to share with you all so you can see them too. So we're starting with a tapestry. Yeah, we're starting with a 15th century tapestry. And I think it's pretty hard, actually, to underestimate the importance of tapestries in a 15th century context. They were really an essential part of the elite interior across Europe, actually. They provided colour, I suppose, on walls, comfort, but a sense of richness, warmth. They were also portable. So it was something really extraordinary about tapestries was that you could quite quickly turn a modest space into an elite space by literally unrolling a tapestry and hanging a tapestry. So they had lots and lots of uses. And this particular tapestry that we're looking at is one of the earliest and one of the finest in the trust collections what it shows is a knight marching through a field of flowers and holding a heraldic banner and this lovely tiny tiny flowers that you can see against this blue background is called in french mille fleurs so you have this idea of a thousand flowers that the knight is walking through and it became a sort of design in the 15th century that there are a number of others like this that was became really fashionable it's made just on the French-Belgian border in Tournai, and it was made for a southern eastern French province for a man particularly called Jean de Dalian. And you can see here that actually the heraldic banner that the knight is holding is that of Jean de Dalian. So it's a fairly impressive thing. And I think even today, if you see it at Montague House, you feel like, gosh, that's incredibly rich and important, but also fantastically detailed object, which is lovely just to look at the tiny details of the flowers. The quality of the tapestry here is breathtaking. It's absolutely beautiful and I want it. <laughs> How do we know what we know about it? How do we know who made it, for example? Yeah, we do know a little bit about who made it. And it was once part of a set of others, probably around five others that were commissioned by Jean de Dalian. And it was made by a master craftsman called Julien Desmarolo. He was working in probably one of the biggest centres of tapestry construction and making in Tournai. So it's partly by working with specialists in textiles from the 15th century and being able to compare them with lots of other French collections and being clear. And we know a little bit about the commission as well because some of the paperwork survives. And it's very much an object of its time in terms of what it depicts, that it shows a knight with his banners, with the horse beautifully caparisoned. I suppose it speaks to the culture of the time in terms of chivalry and courtly love and all these ideas. 
Yeah, it really does. It seems like an incredibly romantic image in a way, doesn't it, with this knight marching through flowers. And at this time, there are also songs being created and poetry being created, which really speaks to the kind of bravery and the idea of the chivalric hero going out to represent its town, but also not just the inhabitants, but often connected to love stories too. It's very much part of that same chivalric culture. One of the critical things that would be important here for a viewer in the 15th century is that you could see and that you could recognise the heraldic banner. So it was clear who was being celebrated, who'd commissioned this and who was paying for them. And you can imagine four or five of these in a room being just enormously impressive, particularly with that individual in that same space. So you get a sense of staging almost here, which is part of the design of these things. They were instant stage sets, effectively, to be able to provide a sense of prestige to their owner, but also the kind of resources that they had at their disposal too, in terms of potentially an army that could support the town. Okay, right. Well, that was a great start. Where are we going next? So where we're going next is one of my favourite books, actually, from the 15th century. It's called the Nuremberg Chronicle. It would have been an enormously famous book in the 15th and actually in the early 16th century. It's published in 1493 in Nuremberg. And this is an example from a property called Saltram down in Devon. And it's probably a kind of survivor, actually, because it came from a monastery in Germany. The library would have been broken up at the time of the destruction of the monasteries. So what you're looking at here is a really extraordinary book. It's written by someone called Hartmann Schnadel, and it's right at the outset of printing technology. This is one of the most busily illustrated printed books, and almost nobody would have held a illustrated book in their hands at this time. So you think about just how often we use books and our use of flicking through pages to get a sense of reference books. This was an extraordinary experience at this time. It would have been a novelty and a marvel for many of the readers. And what it illustrates is a book of kind of the history of the world, effectively. It's about all of the knowledge that you can think of uh, put into one particular book and it provides both beautiful illustrations of plans of cities which show not just European cities but also other places too like Jerusalem and some other Middle Eastern cities. So it would have been that lovely thing, the beginning of armchair travel that you could sit and read this book and think about gosh, Jerusalem, let's see what cities in northern Italy look like. And they have wonderful plans. So the preparation for the creation of a book like this must have taken decades, actually. It was printed in Latin and in German. It's really interesting. As you say, it's only within a few decades of the invention of printing. And Gutenberg had devised the mechanical technique in the 1440s. And it's very early for a secular work. I remember reading once that the religious works were estimated to account for something like three quarters of all the books published before 1520. And that it's illustrated too. It's such a sort of pioneer. Yeah, it's extraordinary pioneering. And it's really, really beautifully illustrated. And I think the quality of the illustrations, particularly Michael Volgamut, who was the designer and the printmaker, and also William Faderworth, What's interesting about Volgamut is he was Albrecht Dürer's teacher. 
So you get the beginning here of some of the designs, some of the compositions have the seeds of that probably most talented of all German Renaissance artists, Albert Dürer. And here we've got Michael Volkermut, his master, who's creating these wonderful designs. You know, the one that's, I think, particularly interesting and I've put into the book is this is memento mori scene of these dancing skeletons rather macabre but there are so many extraordinary illustrations in this book very very inventive really you get this lovely kind of highly skilled technique of beautiful cutting so very very fine lines but also really inventive designs yes this dance of the death that we can see skeletons doing a sort of jig over a grave it is kind of macabre why was it such a fascination really popular across most of Europe, actually, the dance of the death, and particularly seems to have started in Germany. But even in St. Paul's churchyard, they had a dance of the death painted along the cloisters. And it's that wonderful macabre idea, but for Christians, of course, phenomenally important, that you need to hold death dear. You need to think about your final end. And that will help temper the way you act in life. And that actually what's important for Christianity is ensuring that the way you behave and that managing your behaviour is just worth holding on to the fact that the ultimate goal for you is salvation. And that particularly in Catholic faith, of course, it's important that you are behaving in such a way that you ensure that you can reach salvation and therefore holding death in mind, realising that's just round the corner for you is really important. But also for Protestants too, you see it really often, that sense of you may be predestined to salvation, but you also need to ensure that you're behaving the way that you should as a Christian. And just lastly on this, it's got a beautiful cover. Tell me about that. Yes, it has. There's some really, really lovely book bindings across the libraries of the National Trust. And this is an original one which would have been part of the original design. And this book came from a library in Germany. So bookbinding was a craft and art in itself. And you see not just tooled leather, as you see here with this lovely design, but also, of course, the spines would often tell you exactly what you were looking at. Okay, where are we going next? Where we're going next is to a really interesting purse. And I thought this was totally fascinating, thinking about what we know about Cardinal Wolsey. This comes from a property in the north of England, near Newcastle, called Seaton Delaval. This is Cardinal Wolsey's purse, and we know that for a number of reasons, that there is an inscription inside the purse. It's early 16th century. It probably, I think, wouldn't have survived if it hadn't had this association with a well-known, famous individual. But Wolsey, of course, played this really important role at the court of Henry VIII. He's one of the king's closest advisers, but of course he fell out of favour quite dramatically and he was tried of treason, but he died, of course, before he was executed. What you're seeing here is a leather, silk and silver purse with lovely tooling all around the edge, embossed in the same way that book covers were. And what I love about this is they're pretty rare, these kinds of objects. Most of them would have lost them, but you've got some silk embroidery that it opens out onto, and it's got a number of different sections in it. And it just shows how elaborate these things were, how much work 
went into and were personally commissioned, of course. You could go in, I'm sure, in the early 16th century and buy things ready-made, but many people would directly commission exactly what you were looking for. And that's certainly what Wolsey's done here. It has an inscription which reads in Latin, the cross is the touchstone of faith, Cardinal T. Wolsey, W-O-L-S, and then the date in rather dog Latin, 1518. So you have this really amazing object owned by an individual, which is actually in some ways quite an ordinary a sort of object. And 1518 is a point at which Wolsey is very much on the rise. Treaty of London has just been signed that he's orchestrated making peace between different countries. So this is a testament to his wealth and power, I suppose, at the time. He's obviously got time to go out and commission from a master craftsman this really, really beautiful purse. And I suspect it would be used not just to carry coins, but also to carry seal rings and things like that. Probably also gaming pieces, but also documents in here. At the back, it's got a little kind of flap which allows you to see that it would have been carried on a belt. And this is where you get that in the 15th and 16th century cut purses, because it's not pickpockets because not many people have got pockets in this period, but what they've got is purses on belts. And what you needed as a thief to get these off people's was to cut their purse from their belt. So you get the term cut purses for thieves. And the embroidery, which you said was silk, is really surprising to me because it looks almost Celtic in design. Yeah, doesn't it? Really interesting with those curling edges and then these double crosses and then the lovely flowers. It's really beautiful design, actually. It's sort of thing that you can see possibly even copied from a European engraving or copied possibly from marginalia in the side of a manuscript. Often you get those sorts of repeated designs that get used again and again and again. And sometimes you think, oh, if you were looking at this, you might say it was a bit earlier than 15. 18. But because we've got a date, it's lovely to see that. From Wolsey's purse to something rather different, what's this? So this is probably my most favourite object, actually, in the book. Really extraordinary. Most favourite because it's so puzzling. And often those things that puzzle you as a historian, you think, gosh, there's more work to do on this extraordinary table. It dates from about 1542 to 1553. And it's in a hexagonal room in a property called Laycock Abbey down in Wiltshire. It's quite a small room. And you squeeze into this room and it's mostly taken up by this extraordinary hexagonal table which has a carved base at the bottom and then this hexagonal beautiful polished top which is both marble and umotic limestone. What you're looking at here I think is the owner William Sharrington of Laycock who is commissioning this state-of-the-art renaissance table thinking about design particularly in France and probably from a Parisian maker. So you wouldn't expect in the 1540s a country gentleman to be in a position where he's commissioning a table quite of this sort because this is really cutting-edge renaissance design, incredibly beautiful. What you're looking at on the base is these lines stone carvings of these figures which are 
really extraordinary grotesque figures. They have got goat's legs and humans' bodies, and then this extraordinary kind of headdress. But it's influenced by what you would see in France at this period, really fashionable French design, really up-to-the-minute design of a designer called Satou, who creates all sorts of other things like this that you see, but very, very rare in England, which is partly why I like it, really, that idea of being incredibly fashionable. How did he find out about it? And how did the English craftsmen translate these images almost certainly, I think, from printed images. It's worth saying, too, that it was designed as a strong room, we think, this room, and designed probably to show off William Sherrington's remarkable collection of curiosities and cabinet of extraordinary treasures. So probably for his honoured guests to come in and show other objects on top of this table. It's a wonderful showpiece, I think. And I see his initials around the bottom, so there's a clear sense of ownership here. Yes, and also his wife, Grace, which is very nice too. So you get this sense of both him and his wife designing Laycock Abbey, which itself, of course, was a former nunnery, which is then transformed by Sherrington following the dissolution of the monasteries. So you wonder if the limestone is even reused from something else. It's that lovely moment of a patron looking in all sorts of directions at once and thinking about how he's getting English craftsmen to create wonderful French Renaissance design. Yes, that's something interesting there. I mean, a very common story of the gentry buying up former monastic lands. But there's something quite spicy, I suppose, about putting such a classical object that alludes to the gods in a space that once belonged to a nunnery. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's really putting a kind of up-to-the-minute Renaissance stamp by redesigning, creating a hexagonal tower. In fact, there's three stories to this tower, but there is another table a little bit like this in the room above. So very much designed as a space for the elite to come in and to be impressed by, but to create a table to showcase other treasures is sort of interesting, I think. Just shows you about the importance of collecting and the importance of thinking about how decorative art objects were very much part of people's cultural capital and sense of curiosity about the world, which would have happened in this tiny room on top of this amazing table. And we're going from this to something quite monumental. Yes, we're going from Cardinal Wolsey's purse to a globe at Petworth House in Sussex. Just a remarkable treasure house, Petworth, really extraordinary, full of incredibly important treasures. And this is a terrestrial globe. It dates from around 1592, and we know that because it's the first English globe. And it was designed by Emery Molyneux, a mathematician, but the illustrations are by the Dutch emigre Jokadus Hondius and created into this extraordinary globe. We know that Elizabeth I ordered one, and this was probably acquired by Henry Percy, 9th Earl of Northumberland, who was an owner of Petworth at that time. And most remarkably, we know that this has been at the property since 1632. And I think that's one of the extraordinary things about National Trust properties. They are the original galleries and museums of England. And you think, gosh, this subject has played a part and people have seen it for that long at Petworth. I think 
what's really interesting about Globes at this period, you think what's going on in 1592, only kind of four years after the Armada, that, that knowledge is absolutely still power. The importance of effective mapping, of importance of trade routes for both economic security, but also critically for defence. What's lovely about this is it's inscribed at the bottom that it contains the newest, the secretest and the latest discoveries. So you've got this sense of if you own one of these, you're privy to this extraordinary knowledge of how to navigate the world. But I suppose that must be the case. It must well have information that's only recently, or at least in that century, being gleaned about far off lands. I mean, how accurate is it by comparison to modern globes? For Europe, it's accurate and it goes down through key trade routes. But where the mapmaker doesn't really know what's going on, you see these lovely sea monsters where we just think, you know, here be dragons sort of element where you get this sort of sense of less certainty about what's going on. And that's particularly the case in the Southern Hemisphere. Yes, presumably he doesn't know anything about Australasia at this point. So <laughs> there's a gap there, but probably quite good knowledge of the Americas. Yes, pretty good knowledge of the Americas and that you've got absolutely the right outlines there and a really strong sense of trade routes too around the world. That's also what it would be used for about thinking about moving goods too around the world at this time. And is there something particularly English about this sort of globe? Does it have a particular focus on England or the British Isles at the centre of things? No, it doesn't, which is interesting. I don't think all of the scale is quite right, of course. Imagine just how difficult it would have been in 1592 to be able to get something like scale and understand. And this is all done by information from lots and lots of different sources about the outlines of individual coasts. And so routinely, almost every particular visit for trading would also contain cartographers of people mapping and then passing information. So it's an incomplete picture, but it's a pretty impressive picture based on England's view of lots and lots of different trade routes and their different cartographers that would have been taking the outline of the map of Algiers. So pretty interesting and pretty impressive to get it this accurate. Yes, and it's it very much is, I suppose this is becoming the case with many of the objects we're seeing, an object that demonstrates the owner's wealth and ostentation, but also in this case, sort of sense of culture, because it, of course, this is not something practical, you're not going to take this on a boat, but it shows that you know, this stuff that you are aware of this wider world, and perhaps that you're plugged into trade, I suppose. I think so. And also, you've got a kind of foundation to make good decisions about Bay foreign policy and Bay trade, because you've got an understanding of the potential kind of distance from individual trading ports back to Britain. And it's also got on it mapped the round the world travels of Cavendish, but also of Drake. So you've got a sense also of British achievement here too, about the opportunity for how long it takes a, to get round it. But you'll have that kind of broader knowledge in conversation as a result of an ownership of an object like this. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. 
And this seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these sort of great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. And now we're off to our first portrait, it looks like. We are. I've been very good at restraining myself and not bringing portraits in too quickly, but I couldn't resist talking about this Elizabeth I portrait, which is at Hardwick. And I don't think it's the most important portrait of Elizabeth I, but I do think it's one of the most extraordinary because it shows her full length standing on a platform or a dais. And she's wearing what by any sort of stretch of the imagination is a fantastic outfit, a fantastic dress, really. It's a black dress covered in pearl. But probably even more interesting is this white satin petticoat, which is absolutely covered in flowers and foliage, but also sea creatures, incredibly detailed, careful embroidery, probably on a satin surface. But there's something a bit funny about this portrait, because like many English portraits of this period, and it dates from late in Elizabeth's reign, it dates from around 1598 to 99. The perspective is a bit strange. The artist hasn't quite got how you would describe her dress. Her feet feel very tiny. Her waist feels absolutely extraordinarily tiny. And he hasn't quite got the perspective of the extraordinary farthingale, this remarkable dress that she's wearing that would have hooped out your dress in a very, very large kind of circle around you. And that's, I think, because it comes from a miniature design. And it probably is. We've gone backwards and forwards with discussions about who painted this and I think it definitely relates to the miniaturist Nicholas Hilliard who's you know really famous and well-known fantastically skilled miniature painter but we also know he did paint or he was commissioned to paint a number of what are called paintings in large and whether he worked with another artist or whether he actually painted the paintings in large himself I think is very difficult to tell but it comes from I think a miniature design which is partly why the perspective is slightly odd but it is 
big and it is a fantastic spectacle. It was commissioned, we know, by Bess of Hardwick of Hardwick Hall, who was very close to the Queen. And it's almost towards the end of her own life and that Queen advertising her own close connection to the Queen. And we think it came up in a transport in 1599, where a painting is described as arriving at Hardwick. And I suspect it is this one. So nice to be able to have that documentary record that this picture has been at Hardwick Hall since 1599. I think that's one of the most extraordinary things about Hardwick. For anyone who hasn't visited, please do visit because it's one of those few places in England where you get that extraordinary sense of what it was like to be in a really grand Elizabethan interior. Enormously impressive, particularly in terms of the plaster work, but also the tapestries. Yes, I love Hardwick. You can go and stand in the long gallery there and you're in a space that's sort of <laughs> as big as a row of terrace houses. I mean, it's just incredible. And at the end of it is this portrait of Elizabeth. I love the fact I hadn't put together that, of course, Bess knew what Elizabeth looked like. She commissioned this. She had seen this arrive. And there is something in what you were saying about perspective that's very interesting because this face of Elizabeth, we talk a lot about the expression coin was the mask of youth of Elizabeth later in life. And there isn't really anything Renaissance about this picture. We can't see a real body under her clothes in any way. And yet the person who ordered this knew exactly what she looked like. And was presumably very, very happy with what arrived. And I think that's an important point, actually, because if you think about what is going on in Europe in 1600 in terms of painting style, it's very different from what you see here. This is English Renaissance, but actually the French, the Germans, Netherlanders, the Italians are all painting in a way which feels to us much more realistic. But you have to remember that before photographic reproduction, the English viewers wouldn't have had that in their head. They would be thinking about the remarkable fabrics. They would be thinking about Elizabeth as an extraordinary charismatic figure. They'd be thinking about how this just does justice to the Queen rather than necessarily the idea of a trope of visual representation. This is the way to represent the Queen for best. I suppose that's probably the best way of putting it. And the other thing to say about this, from my point of view, is that the neckline is very, very low. And it reminds us of anecdotes about Elizabeth, one ambassador turning up saying that he could sort of see basically down, down to her navel. And this is, of course, her dressing as a virgin queen. Exactly right. And you wouldn't expect this of a kind of matronly woman. But of course, she is perpetually youthful as a virgin queen. And so what you have here is quite impressive decolletage, don't you? And extraordinary pearls at her neck and then pearls that go down. But that sense of uh, queen, you get quite a lot of descriptions, of course, of Elizabeth, which do say as she gets a little bit older, that actually that sort of mask is beginning to crack. And it's very clear that she's got painted, dyed red hair and must have been extraordinarily difficult I think as an older woman to continue to present that fiction and the stress of that which her portrait painters of course do justice to but in real life it must have been very very difficult. It's a lovely contrast to our next object which is also a portrait but a very very different one. (laughs) Tell us about this. 
Yeah, this is down at Kingston Lacey in Dorset, probably one of our most remarkable treasure houses, just a treasure trove of extraordinary pictures, particularly Flemish and Spanish pictures. And this is probably one of the most remarkable there. It's massive. It's one of two by Rubens and it hangs high up a wall. And I think Rubens did something pretty extraordinary in the 17th century to sort of transform our visual language of portraiture, along with Van Dyck, we'll look at in a minute. But Rubens does something which is about showmanship and bravado in his painting style. And you see that here probably most of all in his Genoese paintings. And this was painted in Genoa in about 1607. And it's oil on canvas. And because you're starting to work on canvas at this period, you can create really, really big pictures on a frame. It probably depicts a Genoese member of the nobility called Marchesa Maria Grimaldi and an attendant and it's a tricky picture I think it's a picture which is sort of uncomfortable it is full of drama of energy and movement and the Marquesa is seated but her attendant is standing and it's quite likely I think that the attendant is probably a dwarf he's standing on a slightly raised platform at the back and he is opening a curtain and light is falling directly on the face of the Marquesa. At the same time, you've got this extraordinary movement of the dog jumping up towards her and the curtains billowing. So it's this sense of energy and drama that absolutely is about showcasing people that Rubens does brilliantly as an artist. And I think it's just tour de force of Rubens and fantastic to see it in a country house. What we know is it was bought by William John Banks, the owner of Kingston Lacey, on his tour of Italy. And just thinking about that period by the 19th century, these pictures leaving Italy and becoming part of English country houses is also part of the story of the National Trust. I'm also really struck by the background that we have these beautiful Corinthian columns that we can see and the light, Italian light shining in through, as you say, falling on the you know exquisite woman in the foreground. But all of that too speaks of fashion and wealth and power. Yeah, the way that he's using light here is very, very clever and extraordinary. And it seems to be falling in all sorts of different directions and helped by the fact the Marquesa has the most extraordinary rough, probably the largest rough that you have ever seen it sort of comes down to just near her chest and goes back a long way, which just provides a foil for her face so that everything about this makes you look at the young woman and her very, very elegant face. And I think there's something difficult about that because it's naturally combined alongside the face of the attendant. So there's a sort of sense of comparison there, which feels uncomfortable. It was probably meant to, the sense of dynamism here in the light. And then the sense that you've got the attendant who just just opened this curtain and there she appears. It's about drama of the most extraordinary sort. And it restages actually portrait painting. If we look at, at what we've just seen and only 10, 15 years earlier, it feels like a totally different way of painting. It's really interesting. The rough, you're right, it's bigger than a dinner plate. And unfortunately, I suppose it does have, to a modern view, the effect of making her look like her head is on one, you know, Alla John the Baptist. But actually also it does, as you say, really highlight her beauty Right, so we had two portraits. Where are you taking us next, Tanya? So where we are going next is to a wonderful bed. And it's called a spangled bed. And it's at Knoll in Kent. 
and it was produced about 1621 and it's made of crimson silk satin it's got these wonderful curtains which hang the side and it's got literally hundreds of thousands of what are called spangles or silver and silver gilt sequins so it absolutely glimmers it is a totally showy state bed and the National Trust has got quite a lot of state beds and houses I think this is one of the most remarkable and we know quite a lot about it we know that it was made in 1621 for Anne Cranfield as a bed for lying in and that term lying in means to go through your pregnancy and your eternity before and after the birth. But if you invite someone into your bedroom today, it probably means something very different from what it would mean in the 17th century, because bedrooms were very much showcases. They were places to invite visitors to and to be seen in state, as it were, for elite households. So it's a very different thing from today. Inviting someone into your bedroom is kind of a mark of respect in the 17th century. So what you're looking at here is a kind of extraordinary, enormous red and gold bed, which would have been commissioned for lying in. But we also know that James I visited the Cranfields because Lionel Cranfield and husband was a courtier to James I and he's done something quite showy here to commission this extraordinary object but what's interesting we know that not very long later Lionel Cranfield was accused of overreaching himself and corruption and and finally lost his post so commissioning a very flashy bed like this for the king to see might not have been the best idea. Yes I suppose it is so sumptuous and so lavish that it probably made the king wonder where he was getting all this money. It made him worry about corruption. Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, it's not the greatest idea to advertise your extraordinary wealth, possibly to the king. And you've asked the king in this case to become godparent to the child. So this idea that you could kind of stage this moment of a wonderful time to celebrate your own progeny, as it were, is possibly slightly overreaching yourself. And it comes with not just the bed, but also stools and chairs. And also a cradle was commissioned at the same time. So he was quite interested in being able to have a whole ensemble that the king would be about. And we're just a year later with these next pictures. Two really wonderful portraits by Van Dyck. I think Van Dyck's probably one of the stars of the 17th century. Certainly his reputation and his influence goes on well on into the 19th century as being an artist whose handling of paint, whose idea of composition and inventiveness and his ability to bring some kind of extraordinary sense of both dignity but also personality to his portraits is just breathtaking. What we're looking at here is a pair of portraits at Petworth down in Sussex of Sir Robert Shirley and his wife, Lady Teresa. It dates from 1622, these two portraits, when Van Dyck was in Rome. But who else was in Rome at the time was this extraordinary man, Robert Shirley. And Robert Shirley was working rather extraordinary because he became the ambassador to Shah Abbas in Iran. And so you have this sense of somebody who must have had extraordinary skills in terms of his diplomacy, in terms of his ability to become language, and he adopted Persian customs. So you have him here in Rome, 
his wife. And it would be interesting to know just how the commission would have evolved. Was it Van Dyke going to find Shirley or was it Robert Shirley coming to find Van Dyke? But whatever the case, Van Dyke's clearly fascinated by their extraordinary costumes and the breathtaking fabrics that are here. Robert Shirley's wearing a turban. He's wearing a cloak, which is covered in gold thread and lots and lots of different designs. And then you've got his wife who's seated almost quite demurely in this beautiful, beautiful gold dress. And we don't know why these objects came back to Petworth. But again, they've been there a very long time. They were hanging in the house in 1775. So again, this idea of Petworth as a kind of national gallery, really, at this time of extraordinary objects, where they would have hung alongside, you know, many other remarkable paintings. So I guess they're interesting to me because they're so extraordinary, of this idea of an Englishman in Rome who has become the ambassador to Shah Abbas. Absolutely. This Anglo-Russian couple painted in Rome, dressed in Persian clothes. I mean, it's a wonderful indication of an international outlook in the 1620s. Yes, it is. And it shows you that that sense of what is possible. We don't think about people travelling in the 17th century quite in this way, or both merchants and ambassadors having this kind of reach. You know, you think about his life and his worldview, what he'd seen and the difficulty of travel, but also hugely cosmopolitan figure. He meets a Cistercian woman, Teresa Samsonia, and he marries her, and then they travel as ambassador to Shah Abbas across Europe. So extraordinary international, what you might want to call today, kind of jet set lifestyle, but for the purpose, really, of the Persian state having greater influence through the agency of an Englishman. It seems such an extraordinary thing. And I like the fact it's challenging to us, both in terms of how we think about things historically. You know, we often think of the 18th century being the period where people are perhaps going to India and wearing Indian clothes and become assimilating. And actually, it's happening in the 17th century as well. And that's clear from this. But also today we would probably say, oh, this is cultural appropriation. But actually we've got a very different context going on here. Yes, and the global reach of Britain in the 17th century, I think, is really underestimated. The influence of not just trade, but also of individuals coming back and being able to share information about different religions, about different customs and about different ways of being. And, you know, obviously being comfortable in lots of different languages. So hugely talented man, I'm sure. So from something international to something quite domestic. Yes, I love this object, actually. It's another piece of furniture. It's the Knoll sofa from Knoll in Kent and a really remarkable object. Knoll is a house just full of remarkable 17th century furniture and, and decorative arts and pieces of furniture. This was an object that we know was made for a Stuart Royal Palace. And um, on the bottom of this extraordinary sort of, it's an upholstered bench really, but it's called a sofa. On the bottom is stamped Hampton Court. So you have a sense of these objects being at some stage appropriated, let's say, from Hampton Court and taken to Knoll. And they date from the 1630s, from about 1635 to 1640. What we're looking at is an object which is uh, beach covered bench with silk velvet in crimson with 
operating and it's quite damaged now. Unsurprisingly, it's had a lot of people sitting on it over time, but you still get this sense of a very, very sumptuous sofa. And I think what's interesting about this object and many objects in the National Trust is it gives you that sense of the beginning of the invention of comfort. All of us think now, I can't imagine my house, and I think probably most people can't, without a sofa. You know, people talk about, oh, I've got a date with my sofa, which sort of means staying home and just resting up. Well, what you have here is one of the earliest English-made sofas where you could be comfortable sitting down. I suspect it was created not necessarily for lounging in the way that we lounge, but as an object of state where two people could sit alongside each other in comfort. But amazingly, the sides come down so that you can kind of create a bigger area. It's interesting that the Knoll sofa, this idea, became really famous in the late 19th and 20th century when it was remade and reinvented based on this design. It's wonderful to see something of this vintage that is made of fabrics surviving. You know, it's so difficult for fabrics to survive against all of the conditions that we throw at them. It's fabulous. Now, by my count, we're at 10 objects. We've got two more. What have we got? We've got this extraordinary box, and I love this box because it gives you an insight into the craft probably of a young person in the late 17th century. It's an embroidered box with this raised work embroidery, which is often called stump work in the 17th century. You don't really see it. Many people practice it now, but it's enormously skilled. It gives you this sort of raised surface, which is then embroidered over. And it's at Sudbury Hall in Derbyshire which is very much a National Trust house for children. And appropriately, we think that this is an object made by a young woman. It is covered in these different metallic threads and chenille and silver gilt braids. And what you've got is a lovely design of animals and birds, but of also of really importantly, a biblical scene on the sides and on the front. Now, needlework projects like this, I think, were enormously common for 17th century young women that you would have kind of been set to complete this almost to show your skills and your talents and we know who this was made by a young woman called Hannah Trapham and we know that because her name is on the lock and the date 1671 is there so it would have been a phenomenal labour of love actually. What do you think it tells us about Hannah Trapham? certainly tells us that she loved needlework but it also tells us that she must have come from a reasonably well-to-do household because you've got the materials are reasonably expensive this would have been an expensive thing but not an impossible thing to make to make a box like this she would have probably used designs from 17th century engravings which were quite common that you could buy designs that were specially adapted for embroidery projects so therefore you can mix and match and create your own box so she's pretty creative as well I don't know about anyone else but I love a craft project and this is such a beautiful labour of love to have created something like this and she's creating it probably for herself because she's got her own name on it and it would have held things like tiny bottles it had a secret drawer for letters so it's the sort of thing that you would have on your dressing table and been enormously proud of I think. Yeah it's an exquisite piece of work I can't imagine having the skill to do something like that and last but by no means least we have ceramics. One of the things I love is Dutch ceramics and we've got a lot of them in the National Trust collections 
this is probably one of the most extraordinary things. It's a flower pyramid and it's a Delft flower vase, but it looks, I think, like no other vase that you've ever encountered in your life. It's in the shape of a pyramid with these spouts that come out. And it's in that traditional Delft blue and white, beautifully designed with these extraordinary sort of grotesque animal figures and vases painted onto the side, fantastically detailed. But it's designed almost as a pagoda stripe. So it's picking up on designs from Chinese ceramics, again, something that's looking backwards and forwards. And it's to be found at Deerham Park in Gloucestershire. It's, I think, a remarkable late 17th century showpiece because we know it was used in the summer period to brighten rooms. So you'd have this sense of this extraordinary object which could show flowers. And it genuinely was designed to show flowers, probably most likely tulips, but also other things as well, possibly like poppies and egalitines. So this is a period of Dutch design. We know that the owner was also somebody who liked Dutch design and, of course, worked directly for the Anglo-Dutch court of William and Mary. And that was William Blaithwaite, who worked as an ambassador and was backwards and forwards to the Netherlands. And I suspect that's probably where he bought these. And that's such an important reminder that at this period of time, we're in this Baroque period, it very much is one where English and Dutch culture are being combined because of the monarchy. Dutch style was in fashion at this period in the 1590s, but partly because of the court, but also because it was revolutionary in terms of its design. You look at Dutch Delftware, incredibly beautiful, better than anything actually that we're creating of this kind of quality at that time. And every reason to think why these objects would become fantastically fashionable. And Mary was very, very keen on them too. So you have this sense of an object which is both kind of fashionable, but also useful in that it's showcasing your gardening skills and your and flowers because each spout would hold a single specimen so you also have this interest in nature to be able not to look at a whole bunch of flowers but actually to showcase individual very very expensive and elite flowers from bulbs well tiny this has been a wonderful sort of tour through exquisite items and we've covered two centuries of history by looking at each one of these we've gone from the tapestry covered with flowers to the flower pyramid so we've squared the circle in the end as well thank you so much for sharing these with us it's been an absolute treat oh it's a huge pleasure i hope people will be able to go and see some of these in the flesh and enjoy them themselves because i've really enjoyed looking at these objects but I think there are many many other things that people will find their own treasure in these houses too because this is a lens which looks at just one or two objects in each house but they're absolutely stuffed with treasures and it is so important to go and stand before them and have your own encounter with them so I would encourage you whichever one has inspired you the most that's the place you need to visit next but Don't forget also, or perhaps when you're there, to pick up a copy of this 125 treasures so you can see the rest of the collection, the rest of the items that Dr Tanya Cooper has chosen. Tanya, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Susanna. It's been fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.